Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together as your people. It's good to be with our brothers and sisters and you. (laughs) And so we invite you to come and just meet with us. We long for your presence, your power, your wisdom to teach us, to encourage us, to change us from the inside out and use us for your glory in this mixed up, messed up world. So give us strength and teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 15 through 28, uh, page 655 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we are at this section entitled, Jesus is Our Only Provision. So I thought it'd be a good idea to watch a video clip. Let's watch this. Order now. You get the camera. You get the printer. 4X optical zoom. Snyder lens. Photo printer. SD card. Good afternoon. My name is Russell. And I am a wilderness explorer in Tribe 54, Sweat Lodge 12. Are you in need of any assistance today, sir? No. I could help you cross the street. No. I could help you cross your yard. No. I could help you cross your porch. No. Well, I gotta help you cross something. Uh, no, I'm doing fine. My name is uh, Russell, and I am a wilderness explorer yeah, in Tribe 54. Slow down. Wet Lodge 12. Kid! Are you in need Thank of any Thank you, but I don't need any help. Ow. Proceed. Good afternoon. Let's skip to the end. See these? These are my wilderness explorer badges. You may notice one is missing. It's my assisting the elderly badge. If I get it, I will become a senior wilderness explorer. The wilderness must be explored! Go, go! It's gonna be great. There's a big ceremony, and all the dads come, and they pin on our badges. So, you want to assist an old person? Yep, then I'll be a senior wilderness explorer. You ever heard of a snipe? Snipe? Bird. Beady eyes. Every night it sneaks in my yard and gobbles my poor assailants. I'm elderly and infirm. I can't catch it. If only someone could help me. Me, me, I'll do it! Oh, I don't know. It's awfully crafty. You'd have to clap your hands three times to lure it in. I'll find the Mr. Fredrickson! I think it's Burroughs two blocks down. If you two go blocks down, got it! Uh, neither one of them seem to really be helpful to the other one, right? Uh, but they do end up, if you ever finish watching the movie, they do end up helping each other, don't they? Uh, my brother-in-law owns his own business, and he needs help, but when he hires help, 
they always turn out being unhelpful. Anybody with a business can relate to it. You probably don't want to raise your hand because maybe. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Only the proper provision ends up providing. So what is our ultimate need? Today's worldview is that humans are basically good in need of a little education and politics to bring about the utopia. But what if we're not basically good and our predicament is catastrophic like the Bible states? Then Jesus is our only provision and all other supposed provisions fail. What we're going to see in our passage is we're going to see that blood must be shed, the sacrifice had to be infinitely perfect, and there are no second chances. So we must get this one right because Jesus is our only provision. Okay, let's walk through it. In verses 15 through 22, we see the first thing, blood must be shed. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will is valid only when people die since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So first of all, blood must be shed. And you've got to imagine the old covenant and the worship and the times at the temple. Imagine the mess. I mean, blood is everywhere. They slit the throat of the animal. Blood, they take the blood and they smear it on different things and sprinkle on the people even and the priests and so forth. And so uh, they, they, with the burnt offerings, they burn them on the, on the altar. And so you have the burnt flesh and blood everywhere. It is absolutely disgusting. And it was meant to be like that. So that when the people came and they saw this, they realized this is how bad sin is. Not just a light little thing, little clean kind of a deal. They saw it every time they participated in worship. So our passage is bringing this idea out that blood must be shed. And it starts out with Jesus as our mediator, the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption 
from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Now we've seen this idea of covenants throughout the book of Hebrews. And we've talked about them before, but we see, well, just to remind you, a covenant with God is a binding agreement by which God's people relate to him. We saw at the beginning uh, the covenant with Adam, which is called the covenant of works, Adam and Eve. It was a covenant that revealed that God expects moral perfection. And by the way, he still expects moral perfection. But that presents a problem, doesn't it? Because none of us are morally perfect. And so, thus the predicament. But then we see the covenants as they progress throughout the Old Testament, the covenant with Noah, revealing that God will protect the planet. And then Abraham, when he comes to Abraham, a new part of the grand plan is introduced. We see it in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, also explained in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 5, 1 through 5, where we see that God, He, that He counts our faith as righteousness. Now that's very, very important because we need perfect righteousness, right? Remember the first covenant? And none of us have perfect righteousness, but he, we see this new component with Abraham that God counts faith as perfect righteousness. Then we get to the covenant with Moses. And with Moses, we see the animal sacrifices. And that introduces another aspect of God's plan, that God accepts substitution. It isn't just forgive, penalty must be paid, but he allows substitution. Now we know that, as we'll see even next week, that the animals themselves didn't actually bring about forgiveness, but they pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. Then the covenant of David comes along, and we see that Messiah will bring the solution. And sure enough, the new covenant is brought by Jesus, who is the Messiah, and he puts it all together, being the ultimate substitute, the sacrifice where he shed his own blood in our behalf so that we could be forgiven, paid the penalty, the price we were supposed to pay for our sins, and he counts our faith in him as righteousness because of that. So he takes his our sins upon himself suffers the very wrath of God, then takes his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, and puts it to our account. And that's how we're forgiven. But not only forgiven, but also able to enter into the very holy of holies, the presence of God. That's a great, great plan, okay? But it all comes to fruition because of Jesus as our mediator. He's the one that brings all of this about, this new covenant. Now, we notice that blood was required under the old covenant. Uh, he, He then walks through this, and he speaks of how there needs to be a death to take place and how the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. It was started out and we have the sprinkling of blood. And, and really with these verses, we see he, uh, 
that the author of Hebrews is putting together all of the whole Old Covenant process and showing how the whole thing reveals that through blood, forgiveness comes. Blood is required. The shedding of blood means the death of the substitute. That's what it refers to. Look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so the third book in the, uh, in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I know you're all very familiar with Leviticus. It's one of your favorites. He says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. So notice here, the life is in the blood, because when something, when an animal bleeds and bleeds too much, then it dies. So he's saying the life is in the blood, and so blood was necessary to make atonement. Now that word atonement, kefir, is a wonderful word. It means literally to cover, okay? Uh, To cover. And so what we see here is our sins are covered so that God doesn't see them. He doesn't count them against us. Another analogy he uses is he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, sin is so bad that it can only be satisfied through the gruesome death involved in substitution and ultimately the death of Christ on the cross where he went through that horrible process of crucifixion. Not only the physical pain, but the spiritual pain of suffering the very wrath of God those six hours that Friday for us. And so we see how bad sin is, but the shedding of blood means the death of the substitute. But also the shedding of blood brought cleansing. And that's, we saw this last week, we see it again this week. That's what he's referring to with the sprinkling of all these items and the priests and so forth. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of sin. Now the stains of sin, require the deep cleansing of Jesus' blood. You remember the old Tide commercials? You know, where they'd show one article, two things, they have the same stain, and the one gets cleaned, and the one detergent, and it's still there afterwards. But the Tide, it's gone, right? Okay? Uh, Tide can't clean the stains of sin. Your good works can't clean the stain of sin. False religions can't clean the stain of sin. But Jesus' blood can completely clean the stains of sin, washing us as white as snow. I want you to imagine a fresh blanket of six inches of snow. Not anytime soon, okay? Okay. Christmas Day, that'll be the first one, okay? Fresh blankets, six inches of snow. You go out early in the morning and it's crisp and clear and clean, okay? 
That is how clean you appear in God's eyes if you're trusting in Christ's provision. Cleansed of all sin. The substitutionary atonement is the only sufficient provision. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ shedding his blood for us. So we see the blood must be shed. And then our passage brings out in verses 23 through 26 that the sacrifice had to be perfect. Look at what he goes on to say. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time, at the end of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ's sacrifice of himself, that was the perfect sacrifice. But it had to be perfect because God does not grade on a curve. I tell my students this very fact. I say, God does not grade on a curve, and neither do I. God does not lower his standards, and his standards are absolute perfection. He expects moral perfection, something that we cannot give because we all fail. So only an infinitely valuable and perfect sacrifice is acceptable because God allows substitution. But it has to be perfect because sin is against the infinitely valuable God. And that's what we see. Now, our passage begins with this idea of a sanctuary in heaven. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. And Christ enters the sanctuary made, uh, not made with hands only, of, uh, but, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God. So the 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 sanctuary on earth was just a model of the one in heaven. Christ at his ascension takes the blood up to the sanctuary in heaven, and that's what brings about our forgiveness, his ultimate sacrifice. So there's a sanctuary in heaven, but it's interesting because God uses other analogies like this as well, and he says something about a sanctuary or a temple. Where is the temple of God now? You. The Bible speaks in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. It speaks of us individually as believers being the temple of God. So the Holy Spirit resides within us individually. But it also speaks of corporately how we are the temple of God. And there's something powerful about when we gather together. 
And we are the people of God, the temple of God, the body of Christ, and he dwells in our midst and we experience his presence. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We see this idea brought out. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That spiritual house is referring to the temple. We're the temple. We're the spiritual house where God resides. Now, here's how it works. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you notice the Trinity there, Father, Spirit, Jesus Christ. But you notice here, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, a reference that our author in Hebrews is referring to a reference to the old covenant practice of sprinkling, but sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now look at what happens when that takes place. Look at verse 18. It says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You've been redeemed. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by the empty way of life passed down by your fathers. That would be genetically, that would be the sinful nature passed on. That would also include all the stuff that's ever happened to you in your life, the garbage, the junk, and so forth. All of that, you can be redeemed from that. That means set free. It no longer has to hold you down because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ. This is what we see here. The sacrifice had to be perfect, and it was. Christ's perfect sacrifice is our only hope. Now, our passage, and we've seen this before, we'll see it more as well, alludes to Isaiah 53. In fact, I believe Psalm 110 is the most often quoted passage, Old Testament passage, but alluded to, I think Isaiah 53 is, 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 that it take, is alluded to more often than any other passage in Scripture uh, in the New Testament. So let's look at Isaiah 53 because of the profoundness of this. This is a prediction of the Messiah and what he would accomplish for us. And look at verse 4. It says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. 
And so we see this great substitution. He pays the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And that's what brings us peace with God. Christ's perfect sacrifice is our only hope. And then our passage concludes in verses 27 and 28 where we see there are no second chances after death. He says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We see a contrast, judgment and salvation in these verses. And that's what he wants us to see, that it is a contrast that must be decided in this life. In F.F. Bruce's commentary, he says, men die once by divine appointment, and in their case, death is followed by judgment. Christ died once by divine appointment, and his death is followed by salvation for all of his people. The ESV Study Bible makes a, an important note on this passage. It says, Every person has but a single life before eternal judgment. This repudiates reincarnation and any idea that there will be a second chance to believe after death. Since immediately after the reference to the fact of death comes the phrase, and after that comes judgment, with no hint of any intervening opportunity for change of status. That's how serious this is. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30 brings this out. Let's turn to that passage. In Luke... Thirteen, verse 22. That doesn't look right. I'm in Mark. That's why it didn't look right. Luke 13. We see this teaching from Jesus. He says, He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, Are only a few people going to be saved? An interesting question. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And he's making this statement. He's wanting us to know ahead of time that once the door is closed, it cannot and will not be open. And the door closes 
at either your death or the second coming of Christ, whichever one comes first in your case. There are no second chances as our passage in Hebrews has brought out. We see the same thing in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We don't need to read it, but that's the passage where it speaks of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Both die, and Lazarus goes to be with Abraham. The rich man goes to Hades. And it says very specifically there's a giant chasm between the two of you, and no one can cross either way. It's at in life that we make the decision, and at death there is no longer any second chance. Job 16.22 calls death the point of no return. And he starts out and he speaks of judgment. After this, judgment. Judgment refers to the day of the Lord, an ominous day that we need to look at, though it's not very fun. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Uh, the very end of the Old Testament, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's how you can find it. Zephaniah chapter 1, he starts out and he says in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blasts, battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Why is he saying this? And why is it so? Why can't we just avoid this kind of stuff and just talk about the happy stuff? It's because God is holy, and this is serious, and it's unloving if we avoid this. And let people think that it's okay to just go on and live your life the way you want to live it, apart from God. It's unloving to talk like that if this is real, and it is. But God not only is holy, he is loving, and so he has provided at great expense forgiveness, complete, total, absolute forgiveness. Not just wiped clean, but stayed clean. White as snow, that's how God sees you if you're trusting in Christ. You have the perfect righteousness necessary to come into the very presence of God. Now, some people look at this judgment and they say, well, how can my sins that are finite demand such an infinite penalty? Let me read from Michael Whitmer's book, Christ Alone. He says this seemingly reasonable argument that a finite person could never merit unending punishment overlooks the important fact that culpability is determined largely by the identity of the victim. 
You barely notice when a person inadvertently steps on an ant or swats a fly. But if that person just for kicks decides to pull the legs off a frog, you sit up and pay attention. If they cut the tails off squirrels, you start to worry. And if they begin to torture puppies, you're going to turn them into the authorities. If they graduate to killing another human being, they're going to jail and maybe to the electric chair. And if this person seeks to destroy the infinite and holy God, what then would they deserve? We may not have literally killed God, but that is only from lack of opportunity. We all were born with the insatiable desire to eliminate God so that we can take his place. If we're honest, we sadly hear our own voices in the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him. What does such arrogant ingratitude deserve? But salvation, how he ends the passage, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This salvation refers to our eternal inheritance that he spoke of in verse 15, that the, the mediator who, of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the in, eternal inheritance. I want you to imagine and this is the contrast he's, pray, he's putting here. Imagine what heaven will be like. I want to read you a couple things from Thomas Boston who loves to imagine that idea. What was heaven like? He says this, Nay, they shall be set beyond the possibility of sinning, for they shall be confirmed in goodness. It will be the consummate freedom of their will to be forever unalterably determined to good. And they shall be freed from all the effects of sin. Absolute innocence shall then be restored and every appearance of sin banished far from the kingdom. No more sin. We won't sin. No one else will sin. He says, there shall be no darkness in their minds, but the understanding of every saint when he is come to his kingdom will be as a globe of pure and unmixed light. There shall not be the least aversion to good, nor the least inclination to evil in their wills, but they will be brought to a perfect conformity to the will of God, blessed with angelic purity and fixed therein. Their affections shall not be liable to the least disorder or irregularity, and it will cost no trouble to keep them right. They will get such a fixed habit of purity as they can never lose. Their mind, our minds, our will, our affections, everything perfectly in tune with God's will and his plan. Behold the joy and peace of the saints in their white robes, the joys arising from the view of past dangers and of riches and honors gained at the very door of death do most sensibly touch one's heart. And this will be an ingredient in the everlasting happiness of the saints. <laughs> the more difficulties the saints have passed through in their way to heaven, the place will be the sweeter to them when they come to it. Every happy stroke struck in the spiritual warfare will be a jewel in their crown of glory. 
Each victory obtained against sin, Satan, and the world will raise their triumphant joy the higher. (laughs) They will have an eternal rest with uninterrupted joy. uninterrupted. He goes on. He says, they rest there in God who is the center of their souls. Here they find the completion or satisfaction of all their desires, having the full enjoyment of God and uninterrupted communion with him. This is the point to which, till the soul come, it will always be restless. But that point reached, it rests. For God is the last end, and the soul can go no further. Jesus is our only provision. He is all we have. He's all we need or could ever want. I want to finish with Psalm 73, verses 16 through 26, page 313. Psalm 73 is a great psalm because the psalmist is wrestling with the inequities of life, the unfairness, that justice isn't always served. And he's wrestling with this, and it's troubling to him. It doesn't make any sense to him. And he says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. You see, once he came into the presence of God with God's people and the encouragement and the worship, he he, he got a better picture of the eternal outcome. Justice will be served in every single instance. That's God's promise. But it wasn't until he entered his presence that that it clicked, that he was satisfied. And look what he says. Skip down to verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Whom have I but you? He is all we have. He is all we need. He is all we could ever want. Let's pray. Father, we wrestle with the injustices of life. We thank you. We know you will set everything right. You will wipe out all evil. And we thank you that even though we personally have contributed to the evil of this world, we have helped wreck this beautiful planet that you've made. That you forgive us because of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, you are our only provision. That you are enough.
when you said it is finished, God was completely satisfied with your offering as our substitute. And I ask that if there's anyone here who's still wrestling with their sin and struggling, not obtaining forgiveness, wondering, I pray that they would come and be drawn to you, simply repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and receive that total forgiveness. Draw them to yourself today and help each of us. That as the devil, when he comes along and tries to make us miserable because yet we failed again, that you will remind us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we simply confess. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. I appreciate it. We love you. Amen. Let's stand.